0: must be Thursday. Welcome to Learning Unwrapped, the podcast about your most important life skill, learning. Today's guest is a professor and the coordinator of the EDS program in educational leadership at the Wright College of Education at Appalachian State University and the founder of Chalk and Chances, and that's chalkandchances.com promoting stories from classrooms and working with educators to amplify their impact. She is a TEDx speaker on the impact of a teacher and a former principal at the Hillsborough County School District in Florida. Shout out to Hillsborough County. Her books include Unmapped Potential and Daily Reflections for School Leaders, and her newest book just published, Safe Seen and Stretched in the Classroom is one of the most intriguing educational books I've read of late. Please welcome Dr. Julie Schmidt-Hassen. Hey, Nancy, thank you for that
1: sweet introduction.
0: Well, you know, Julie, the last time, because you were on my show about a year ago, and when it was, I call it season one, when we were, uh, make it was an internet TV show, and it was produced by International Broadcast Media TV, shout out to them. And this year, I decided to switch it over to a podcast. But back then, I only knew you as Julie Hassan. And I noticed that on the book, you are Julie Schmidt Hassan. So which do you prefer? So when I publish, I
1: use my maiden name and my married last name because there is a beautiful vegan chef named Julie Hassan who publishes (laughs) prolifically all kinds of cookbooks. That is not me. I do not have that skill set. So I tried to differentiate. The two of us, the educator and the chef, two different. That's great. That's
0: great. So fundamentally what you're saying is you can't bake the cupcakes, but you can deconstruct them. I can assess them. <laughs>
1: <on> <laughs> many different variables. My daughter is vegan. She loves the other Julie Hassen. M- maybe more than, no, not more than. No, no, but, no but, never. <laughs> but, a, but a fan of both of ours, I would say.
0: Well, shout out to. The other Julie Hassan.
1: Super talented vegan chef,
0: Julie Hassan. (laughs) So so everybody has to then follow both of the Julie Hassans, right?
1: If if you are vegan and love to cook, yes.
0: Now, at the time that we spoke last time when you were just Julie Hassan, uh, you were finishing up the manuscript on your newest book. So it's now out and it's available through your publisher, Routledge, who's also my publisher, Yes. Very great publisher. Shout out to Lauren Davis, right? Uh, Lauren uh, Davis is the best. She's the best. So a shout out to her. So that's Routledge, but you can also purchase the book through Amazon and Amazon and any of the other online booksellers. The book is called Safe, Seen, and Stretched in the Classroom. So just some author questions here. Have you read the book since it was published?
1: I have because we released the book study guide. So I went back in to pull content for the study guide and for other content that we're putting out on YouTube and for speaking and training and, and all of our professional development. So I've had to go back and read it. I've read it in pieces, so not front to back. But um, sometimes like I, it? I do like it's I feel like I, I need to take my own advice in many ways, I think. I should do that. I wrote that, but I really should do that more consistently. That's funny. That's funny.
0: Yeah. After I wrote my first book, I know this isn't your first, but after I wrote my first book, I just couldn't go back and read it. And then my team at IDE Corp, our educational consulting company said, well, we need to read your book as a company read. And I thought, but then I'm going to have to read it. So I read it and I want to say it was months after it was published. And I, as I was reading it, I was saying, that was pretty good. Oh, I like that. So it sounds like you were having the same experience. Like, wow, that was I made a good statement there as I though did. we're like, surprised, like I, right? I sounded
1: so coherent and kind of smart. So it was good. I love to go back and look at and, and I do this for my my own children too. Like look at writing that you did at different points in time because it so captures what you were thinking and what was important. So I try to go back. And read things I've written before with a little bit of grace for myself and, and understanding. That's where I was at that at that point. Um, my mom pulled out a third grade essay we had to write about what we want to be when we grow up. So my essay, because it was always a you know really focused high achiever, was about my desire to be Mrs. John Travolta. It was a <laughs> well constructed essay <laughs> with all the reasons why. That's great. That's great. How'd that
0: work out for you?
1: Didn't. Didn't. I think I, you know, looking at Brian Hassan, I think I probably scored even higher. I think I probably
0: overshot that goal with him. Well, you know, two degrees of separation here. When I was a teacher uh, back in the day, fourth grade, I taught John Travolta's nephews. Nice. See, so we have that two degrees of separation. We have that in common. (laughs) let me get back to your book because what I loved about it, and I said it was, it was the most fascinating, intriguing read, uh, because you write it, it reads as a novel, and yet it's a nonfiction book about education. So talk to me about that. How did, how did you pull that off? I'm a really
1: avid fiction reader, and I love a story. Part of it is I'm a qualitative researcher, so my data is story, so I tend to kind of think in story structure. And it lent itself to that because the book is really the journey of the idea for the research and then collecting the data and then analysis happening and sort of sharing the discoveries. So I wanted to take the reader with me from location to location and kind of paint the picture of how things unfolded. And I love to write in scenes, so it was fun to write a scene at the farmer's market or after at the craft fair or on a university campus or in a public park and really paint that picture. It it was a fun way to write it. And I hope it was an engaging way to read it.
0: Oh, it was. And I love what you just said about, you wanna take the reader, you know, from place to place on the journey. That's, that's, and you accomplished that amazing book. Um, So you mentioned the data. Talk a little bit about how you collected data Because this really started as a research study that then wrote itself into a book.
1: It did. It started when I became a professor and I was told you need a research focus. What are you going to write about? What are you going to study? I'm a qualitative researcher by training from my doctoral program. So I study things with interviews and observations. And when I became a professor, my beloved Mrs. Russell, my first grade teacher, retired at that same time. And I really wanted to know what do teachers like Mrs. Russell do that make a lasting impact on those of us who were students? Wow. Um, love Miss Russell. And some, some of my other most impactful teachers retired right around that time. So I started by interviewing teachers about their impact, which was not good research design because we don't know <laughs> what our impact is. Right. And we know what we hope it is, but unless a student comes back, or send us a letter, or we get some other kind of validation of that impact. We don't have any way to know. So I decided the only way to really know is to talk to former students. They are not hard to find, they're everywhere. So I worked with our Office of Research Design on my campus and looked at how do we put ourselves in places where there's a diverse group of people and how do we invite them in to talk to us about teachers? So I went to Office Depot and got a sign. I brought props to our talk today. So here's my sign.
0: So wait. My you have corrugated to sign. This if I could get yeah. it in the camera oh, we'll here. Podcast. Oh, that's a good one. Wait, <laughs> right there. All right. That's a good one. It says, let's, let's- chat about a teacher you remember. I love so- that. For those of you
1: listening, it's my plastic corrugated sign, which has a metal stake that just sticks in the ground. So I went anywhere I wouldn't get arrested. Um, <laughs> craft fairs, farmers markets, college campuses, you know, they often have little markets or different events going on. The public park by me stuck my sign in the ground. And surprisingly, people would line up to tell me about their teachers. And they would share these really wow. detailed personal stories in the middle of the street at the farmer's market. I think there's such gratitude and love and joy when that memory of something a teacher said or did to impact our lives comes up that they were very willing and happy to share their stories with me.
0: Wow that's powerful. It was amazing. You know to put that sign out it's kind of like come talk about your favorite teacher. And am scared.
1: I mean, I'm an introvert, like way over on the continuum on the introvert side and like social anxiety, all of those things. So it was a scary proposition to think I'm just going to put myself out there knowing like people will may reject you. People may say unkind things, whatever. And they did sometimes. But I was more curious than I was afraid. So I just kept going.
0: I love that. Well, that's the sign of a fabulous educator, right? more curious than afraid. Mm. I like that statement. So from that data collection, then you putting your sign up, um, you have any favorite stories? Gosh, my
1: husband always says the the latest one to come in is my favorite, and that's probably true. They're so, I mean, I love them all. And they're all so different. Like the context of each story is different because the people and the places are different. But the themes are the same. And I think one of the earliest ones that came, and, and I talked about it in the TEDx talk, too, was a man named John. And I was at the craft fair. It was my very first time out with my sign, trying to collect data, like sort of fumbling through. I didn't really know how to invite people over or how to start, all of that yet. And we got close to the end of the day. And I think he was tired. He was an older man with a bad knee. So he came hobbling over there was a chair next to me and I think really he just wanted to to sit down for a minute. so he sat down next to me and we started to talk and he told me this story about his third grade teacher Miss Andrews and he started to explain that growing up he lived in a with parents he was an only child who abused alcohol and his father abused his mother and it was a really difficult situation and he didn't really realize how. Other children were cared for differently until he went to school. And then he would notice that they brought in, you know, carefully packed snacks and they had carefully cleaned clothes and he started to feel very different than other kids. So his teacher, Miss Andrews, would invite him over after school and feed him snacks. And one day he was leaving and she handed him this package It was wrapped in brown paper, tied up with string. This was many decades ago. And he ran home to open that package and it was three brand new school shirts. Like, I don't know how she she knew, but what he said after that is really what stuck with me. He said, it made me feel so worthy and it made me feel so loved. And because I felt worthy from then on, I made better decisions and I could have gone on the path that my father went, but instead I would remind myself, Miss Andrews loves me. I'm worthy because Ms. Andrews cared for me. And he said, I know she couldn't have had much herself, but she saw me and she noticed what I needed and she did this for me. And he became the father of two adopted daughters. He became a firefighter, like just loved on people and made such an impact on others because this teacher poured into him. And I think that was the moment for me when I knew like there's something here about asking this question and hearing these stories that can help us be, not just better teachers, but better humans.
0: What a fun experience for you to be able to just sit and listen to, and then have the data from that. To listen to people tell their stories, and what a that, that story gave me chills. You know, oh, so beautiful. And Miss Andrews, good shout out to Miss Andrews. Ms. Andrews. Uh, and uh, wow. All right. So, so talk then about the title. Cause that there's the safe part. <laughs> yes. Um. So after I had probably 50
1: stories, maybe close to a hundred, I began to do analysis on the data and, and I started with coding, like what are the words people use over and over? And then I went a little deeper. What are the themes here that repeat? And it became really clear, really quickly. People talked about feeling safe as he had done. Miss Andrews, classroom was the place he felt safe. They talked about feeling seen so that this teacher noticed something about them and responded, noticed a need, noticed a strength, responded to their interest, made them feel accepted and loved. But accepted and loved, just as they are, also saw their potential and stretched them. So help them move from where they are to where they can be and there was a little bit of tough love in a lot of these stories. So we always think about, all oh, the sweet, warm, fuzzy stuff. But the challenge was important. Stretching their perspective, stretching their thinking, stretching what they believe is possible for them. And safe, seen, and stretched kept coming up over and over. Now we're over 400
0: stories in. Still not an exception to these themes. That's awesome. You know, when I think back to my favorite teacher, it was Phyllis Malloy, at, uh, I was at the, uh, e, uh, what was it? Uh, I can't even remember the name of my school. Ramapo Senior High School in East Ramapo School District in New York. And when I completed my doctoral, def- the defense of my doctoral dissertation, and they said to me, you know, now you're a doctor, I went directly to school and delivered a copy of my dissertation to her that I had dedicated to her. Oh. And, it, and it was because... All through school. Now, interestingly enough, I had recently had occasion to go back and read some of my old report cards. And my first grade teacher said, she's not a very good writer. She needs to oh. develop her skills. So I guess I managed to pull that off later. But that through, say, middle school, my, te- my teachers would say how creative I was. And I had this wonderful, fabulous, nice teacher in ninth grade who just said, you know, everything I wrote was an A, creative, creative, creative. She loved my creativity, which in retrospect, I'm actually very happy that I first got noticed for my creativity, you know? And then when I was in high school, I I handed in my first paper to Phyllis Malloy and it came back with a big red D on it. Now, of course I had never gotten a D in my life So after school, I went up to her kind of nonplussed. I'm like, ah, I've never gotten a D. Like what, what did I do wrong? And she looked at me and she said, well, first of all, the entire essay is one paragraph. And I said, what's a paragraph. So think about this back in the day, I'm 66 years old. I made it all the way to 10th grade without really knowing what a paragraph was. And I, And she she then said, started talking to me about some of the structures I needed to use. And she said, but feel free to go back and write it again. And if you want to submit it again, I'll regrade it. So I did. And I came back and it was a C. And I said to her, like, a C still isn't good enough. So she offered some more uh, ideas. And I went back and I did it again. And I finally got an A. And the interesting thing is, God bless her, that I ended up getting an A in the class. Like her belief was if you're willing to put in the time and effort to get better and better and better, I'm going to let you land where you landed instead of punishing you for getting that initial D. But, and I think it's so interesting to me because I loved her because she stretched me really stretched me. So I go to that, oh. you know, that story. And, and while and it was interesting, cause I recently, we have another podcast coming out with Pete Sturgis who, uh, is the head of the, uh, I can't even remember the whole title, but the head of the Foundational League of um, Football Soccer in England. Mm -hmm. And we were just talking about how important it is not to simply drill kids in the skills and the techniques, but also let them be creative and develop strategies. So in a way, I'm very glad that she, that all along, I was encouraged for my creativity because, and it was true, in 10th grade, within Three papers, I knew how to write. I learned all the techniques of writing afterwards, but I learned the storytelling aspect the creativity Mm -hmm. all along. So, geez, Julie, I'm just adding to the stories over here.
1: I'm I'm adding that to my data right now. (laughs) That's a great story. And I love that her focus wasn't on what you came in not knowing and your deficits. Her focus was on where you wanted to be and she saw her role and how to help you get there. That's yeah. stretched, isn't yeah. it? That's
0: beautiful. Yeah, totally stretched. And there was something else she did. If I'm going to shout out to Phyllis Malloy, that uh, she gave us Warner's grammar book. How many of you remember? Oh, Miss Malloy, yes. <laughs> Warner's grammar book. But she said to us, "I'm not going to just teach lessons from this. I want you to have it. You can leave it at home for now. You will need it. Refer to it." but we're really gonna talk about literature. So she really, we just engaged in wonderful conversations about all of the insights and the nuances of writing. But when she read through our papers and realized that perhaps we didn't know whether to use which or that, she would then teach the lesson. And it is interesting Mm -hmm. that in my career in changing education, I'm all about, don't teach the skills first, put students in a real world Problem. Give them a, a, a compelling real-world problem to solve or a challenge so that they are excited about it. They will seek out the learning for the skills, and it just yeah. flips. Uh, I'm actually writing a blog, past, blog post now on teacher retention, and I talk about we need to be a little bit counterintuitive. You know, you don't you don't actually need the technique of writing to write. Just start writing because right. you can then go back later, right? And
1: fix what you written. Yeah. Yes, and find yes. find what you need, whether it's grammarly or whatever. And I think about that all of the time, you know, since my work has come out, I love to think about the work other people are doing and where the intersections are. You know, mm-hmm. I just talked to Tammy Musiowski, who talks about being minimalist and like how that getting rid of distractions can strengthen our relationships. But I think about your work so much with IDE, because really you talk about creating this safe space for kids to explore and learn, and then appeal to their interest and their own motivation, which is feeling seen. But talk about like stretched, putting them in these project-based, real-world kinds of learning situations, it's such a stretching thing. So there's so many ways I think our work goes together.
0: Right. I love the way you just brought that. The learner active technology-infused classroom is all about being safe, seen, and stretched. And you're right.
1: Completely, like there's so many intersections. Whenever I read all of your things, your blogs or books, when I hear you speak, I'm like, this connects so well. I'm writing this narrative about people's stories, but you're giving them resources and telling them how
0: to do it. So we have more in common than just that we both know John Travolta in different ways. that's true. (laughs) Now, I love the term amplify your impact, which I, I heard in watching your TED. Talk. So, uh, whether we are teaching our own children or other people's children or colleagues, just summarize uh, for our listeners some of your strategies for how one amplifies their impact.
1: I, w- I was thinking when I said that about how so often impact happens serendipitously. We say the right thing to the right person at the right time. You know, a kid has a need, we recognize the need, we do the right thing somehow. And we make this impact. But we could do that so much more consistently and intentionally if we knew how. So I love that this sort of safe, scene and stretched framework, because now that I know that I teach, I teach grad students, I can make sure that I do those things with my students. So making sure they feel safe. You know, we spend a lot of time building trust as a community of learners, as a professor who's giving them feedback. We spend a lot of time getting to know them as individuals, so helping them feel seen. I want to know what their goals are. I want to know what they're struggling with. And then, of course, stretching. They're aspiring leaders. So how do I push them a little to take on some more leadership responsibilities, and how do I coach them in doing that? So for me, it's keeping that in mind and intentionally putting those things into practice so it's not accidental. Impact Hmm. is really intentional impact.
0: Impact is intentional. I love that. You're right, because it may start serendipitously. But if you really think about it, you can take those kinds of actions that would amplify your impact. And then you start to look for it,
1: right? So I think right, about right. how many opportunities for impact I missed when I wasn't looking for it. But now I, I'm looking for what signals are they giving that they have this need? Or how do I recognize the strength that I can build on, like your teacher did with you, there are all of these opportunities and if if we don't slow down and look for them, we can miss them.
0: All right. So I have to add that to my uh, blog post that I'm writing on teacher retention, because one of my fears is that as post pandemic or in the middle of pandemic, schools are looking at, Oh, students are lagging behind. We have to catch up. We have, you know, learning acceleration, et cetera. There is this tendency to drill more like, okay, Now, pacing guides, we need you on this page, and teach them this lesson, and teach them this lesson, and as if we cram all these lessons into students, they're going to get anywhere. And the reality is, that couldn't be farther from the truth.
1: It's the opposite, and you and I know, it's the opposite of good practice. So we have decades of research, Robert Pianta, Valesky, and Stupic, all of them, about how strengthening student-teacher relationships lead to better academic, social, and emotional outcomes for kids. And I worry that we are distracting teachers and we are not leaving them time to build relationships by insisting that they stick to these real strict curriculum calendars and keep cramming things in. And even when students maybe don't have the foundation for it, it's on the calendar. And so we have to do it. Right. Such bad practice but in addition to student outcomes that's where teacher satisfaction comes in like stronger yeah. relationships with students are what keep teachers in teaching so yeah. we're we're shooting ourselves in the foot on both counts we're losing our teachers and our kids kids are not getting where they need to be because we're not allowing them to focus on building these relationships building these communities
0: right and it's interesting uh, you really have me thinking now so about safe scene and stretched when I was teaching middle school math and I was teaching the students who weren't succeeding, I just kind of threw my hands up in the air and changed everything. And I took a totally problem-based approach to learning. So it was just, here's a real world problem we have to solve. And the kids got so into, well, how do you do this? And how do you do that? And before you know it, I'm teaching math because they needed the math to figure out the problems. And I remember as I just, I just wrote this as I'm drafting this blog post he would walk by my classroom, whenever visitors came to the school, he would definitely tour them past my classroom. And they would stand in the doorway looking in and I would hear him say over and over again, we're not sure what she does in there, but the test scores are good. And what was so fun about that, because the first year he said to me, your kids like blew away the tests. So did you cheat? And I said, of course, I didn't cheat. He said, well, did you go around telling them, no, look at this one again? And I'm like, no. I said, but Maybe it's because I was only a second year teacher, so I didn't really know. But I'm like, maybe it's because we spend all of our time tackling big challenges. And I think my students just saw the test as another big challenge to to tackle. Right. But I but as you as you're saying those words, I felt safe with him. Mm -hmm. I was actually fired from my first teaching job because I was too innovative. So this was my second teaching job, but I felt safe because he appreciated me because he saw me. I felt seen. He understood that I was going to be this creative, innovative, out-of-the-box teacher. And then, you know, obviously I was stretched because he just kept challenging me and throwing it out there and giving me tougher classes. And so even as teachers, so do you yes. think, I know your answer to this, but I'm going to ask you anyway, do you think that one of the, uh Answers to teacher attention is making sure teachers feel safe, seen, and stretched.
1: When I ask them what they need to say, the things they tell me fit right into that framework. So I used to get brought into schools and districts to speak or do professional development to help with instruction, effective instruction, effective classroom culture, all of these things. Lately, I get calls constantly And it may be because of the TED Talk. I need to dig a little into why, how they're finding me in this this area. But I get calls, we need you to come help our teachers not quit. (laughs) So I come, I share the stories. I talk about, you know, relationships with kids, why it matters, why it makes them feel good. It's interesting that they're starting to see that we can't focus all of our efforts on test
0: scores that those are a secondary outcome. Yes, I love that. They're the byproduct of good teaching. Mm -hmm. And that's when I switched up my teaching in my second year of teaching, I didn't, I wasn't thinking of, oh, I need to have the students pass the test. I just knew my students were like horribly disengaged and didn't care about math. And I actually said to them, come to class tomorrow. Don't bring your pens, pencils, books, nothing, just come. I want to talk to you. And we got into a circle and talked. And I said, like, guys, you need to learn math. What's up? And they said to me, it's so boring. So I my goal was, how will I engage my students better? And then they were engaged and we were all excited. And then when they took the state tests, they did beautifully. And I remember even my my principal said to me, uh, Nance, your students outpaced all of the regular ed kids in percentages. How did you teach percentages? And to this day, I love the answer. I didn't get to that chapter.
1: Huh. Thinking, wait, I didn't even teach percentages. That's ama- what you did was build their efficacy. Yes, you took, you took kids who did not think of themselves as kids who could do math. And you showed them they were kids who could do math, which made them willing to take on a challenge because I'm a kid who can do some math, right? Yeah, right. So it's there as we build their confidence in something, if we also build their confidence, they're they're going to do well. They're going to try hard things. They're going to sustain through challenges. The fact that you did that for them showed in that they didn't give up on that test. They didn't Christmas tree it when it
0: got hard. knew they could figure it out. Right, right. And I love that you use the word efficacy because that's what I speak on. And that's what the Learner Active Technology Infused Classroom Framework is all about, engagement, empowerment, and efficacy. And I think if we engage and empower students, we get to efficacy. And I think also from the teacher retention end, if we engage and empower our teachers in term, in, instead of disempowering them and asking them to just be on this page by this day and do exactly what's in this book, we will build efficacious teachers and they will change the world.
1: They, they're, they're so capable of it. And they're so passionate about it. And we just feed it out of them.
0: Yeah, Julie, you and I could go on forever and just, you know, make these connections. But let me read an excerpt from your book. I hope I'm as good as audible on this. Uh, This isn't one of your stories, but this is actually probably your analysis or your findings from the stories. Comparisons may happen openly in classrooms, such as scores on a chart or comments in front of the class. But more often, comparisons of ability in classrooms are more subtle. Students intuitively compare a teacher's interaction with peers to the teacher's interactions with themselves. And then you later in that same section share When students perceive their teachers are giving discretionary effort and making an investment in their success, they come to believe they must be worthy of that effort and investment. They make inferences about their own potential. On the flip side, a lack of interaction, simply assigning tasks with little regard for students' needs or interest, and giving minimal feedback sends strong messages about a student's lack of potential. And I love that this came out of your data talking to Students. So, talk more about this. How can teachers check themselves to ensure they are amplifying their impact and not detracting from student success in a time of pacing guides and teacher disempowerment?
1: And it's so much, kids are constantly making inferences about our beliefs, but they're doing it based on our actions. Like, you can have the most beautiful banner in your classroom that says all kids can learn doesn't matter like they're watching what you do and how you interact so I saw it happen in a classroom a couple of years ago I wrote about this in the book I was in a third grade classroom a principal invited me in just to do observations because some subgroups weren't making gains couldn't figure out why so I sat in this third grade classroom young teacher she was teaching I think at this point it was a science lesson, asking these really good higher order questions, just like we teach them in teacher prep programs like ours. And she was pulling out popsicle sticks like we do in elementary, and she was too too young and new to know that like I couldn't see the stick. She could have called on any kid, <laughs> she she could have picked anyone, but she I could tell by her face that she wished she hadn't pulled that stick. So she called on the little guy whose name was on the stick, and he looks a little confused at first and right away she said do you want to phone a friend we do that phone a friend in elementary
0: school oh I remember this story I love this this
1: story he said yes he did want to phone a friend called on a friend the friend provided the answer and we moved on and then they were doing independent work and a happiness screwed up by his table and if you play sort of ignorant with a kid they'll tell you everything
0: So Wait, I said, there's a profound yes. statement. If you're yes. ignorant with a kid, they will tell you They'll
1: everything. They'll tell you everything. You know, kids will tell us everything we need to know about good teaching. We need to just ask the kids. So I asked him, like, tell me about phone a friend. And he said, I'll, I'll never forget it. He said, oh, she doesn't let the smart kids phone a friend. I thought, whoa, tell me more about that. And he said, well, like some kids, if they don't know the answer right away, she'll kind of work with them a bit because she knows they can get it. But if she knows you can't get the answer, she just lets you phone a friend. Wow. Everything you needed to know about her expectations of him were right there. So I stuck around, of course, for math, I think, came next. And I watched her. And with some kids, she scaffolded and probed and restated the question. And with some kids, it was quickly phone a friend. And so I remember thinking, this principle, like the answer to all of this is right here. Her expectations were really obvious in her actions and interactions. So I think that's what it is, is stepping back and really thinking about what do I really believe about kids? Like that really uncomfortable reflection. And how is that manifesting in my actions and my choices in the
0: classroom? And I think what's great about the way you wrote this book is that as a teacher, I could read through it and say, oh, I've done that. I've done that. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> let me know that again. Yes. And, you
1: know, I really, when I wrote this book, never wanted it to be preachy. Like, I'm the last one that's going to preach it, teachers, because after 30 years, I'm still learning how to teach. And it's something none of us will ever really master. You know, um, we get better at it. Thank goodness. Through time and effort. Amen. But I did not want to preach it, teachers. They're doing the best they can with what they know. They're working so hard right now. I was never a teacher during a pandemic. I, I can't fully understand their challenges. Right. So I hoped through just sort of saying, this is what I saw, you know, or this is what someone told me. This is maybe what it means that that would be a way they could reflect themselves and not me sort of preaching at them.
0: Mm. It. And it. what's fascinating, again, I have to go back to the way you wrote this book. We, we at IDE Corp, we read a book a month and get together as a team to discuss, you know, how we liked it, its impact, where we, where we think it could impact our work, how our work aligns or doesn't align, et cetera. And a lot of times authors will use stories, I think, almost contrived as a way to, you know, grab your attention. And I hate mm-hmm. those stories because I feel like, just get to the point, you know, the will be like in 1985, Boeing International. And I'm like, oh, you have to just tell me what the point is, you know? Right, I know about Wilbur. I, the I don't need that. Just tell me yes. what. You <laughs> and I, and I, I'm one of the first to say, like, you, you know, he could have written the entire book in one chapter. And I remember after I wrote my book, I said to my team, like, could I have written this in one chapter? What is this? <laughs> no, I've read your book. No. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you. But I feel like your stories are not used in that way at all. Like I love what you said earlier that this book is really a journey and I'll add to that. It's really a journey through the minds of learners to inform teachers as to what works and doesn't work. So I hung on every word of every story thinking, oh, I wish I would have done that or I didn't do that or maybe I didn't see that or did... And I, I think it's, it's incredibly impactful and especially the time we're talking about equity and the fact that we need to engage in um, race conscious pedagogy. We need to look at the LGBTQ plus community. We need to consider that our special needs population aren't necessarily special needs. They're just different learners. When we talk about, um, you know, students having neurodiversity instead of assuming something is wrong with a child. Like in a world where we are really attempting to get to equity, I think your book is a powerful tool. So give me your thoughts on that. Thank you for that.
1: Well, I, I have a lot of thoughts on that. I'm dyslexic, so I know what it's like to be a kid with a label who struggled to learn. Mrs. Russell was my first grade teacher, and I always think had she shown frustration with me or any doubt in my ability or, or, or interacted with me differently, I think I would have forever seen myself differently as a learner. But because she believed I was a reader and because of the way she interacted with me and she used this multisensory approach like that we would call Orton Gillingham now, but then was just her crazy out of the box ideas. This is Russell. (laughs) This is Russell, man. I became a reader and I saw myself as a reader and I loved to read and I still love to read, but that's all based on her belief in me and the actions she took because she believed in me. Right. And I, if she had thought this poor kid, she's just never going to read on grade level. She would not have invested in me the way she did I, ha- I have a friend, Missy Leonard, who's a great principal. She was my co-writer for Unmapped Potential. And she works at this school that has a courtyard full of elm trees. And one of them turned brown. And everybody said, Leonard, that tree is dead. you got to pull it out. She was like, that tree is not dead. And so she would water. She made a big production about it because she's very dramatic. She watered that tree every day. She talked to it. She put sweet signs around it. And then after a few weeks, Green leaves started coming and the tree came back.
0: Wow.
1: I think it's the best example for teachers of beliefs driving actions. Had she thought it was dead, she wouldn't have given it any time, attention, she wouldn't have poured discretionary effort into that tree. But because of her beliefs, she did those things. And I think that's that's why we have to dig into what we believe about kids because that drives our actions and our interactions. And it's uncomfortable, especially now when we're talking about issues of equity we have to look at our own backgrounds we have to really think about our biases and question those beliefs and how they are manifesting in our classrooms
0: wow okay so normally at this point as we end the podcast i say okay let's unwrap the learning and i ask you another question but you un you just unwrapped the learning <laughs> so it's that belief what was the term you used beliefs um i think they manifest in our actions and interactions
1: in the classroom, like what we do and the way we treat people is based on what we believe about them. And so I hope the stories in this book and kind of going on the journey with me will, if nothing else, help teachers reflect on
0: those beliefs. Yes, that's fantastic. Well, you we got a mic drop right on the end. So. <laughs> uh, safe, seen, and stretched. Amazing book. And I think everybody should read it, not just educators. I think parents will learn a lot. I think business people will learn a lot. I, I just think I couldn't say enough. So thank you, thank you, thank you, Julie Schmidt Hassan. <laughs> You're either going to get Amplifying Your Impact in the Classroom or the Kitchen, depending on which Julie you pick but it's Julie schmidt Hassan. And Julie, any final words that you would like to say to our audience?
1: Uh, thank you, Nancy, for having me. I, I so believe in the work that you're doing and the thank resources you. and the things you're giving to teachers so that they can make an impact on kids.
0: Yeah, so uh, we're, we're definitely going to be promoting your book because I think every teacher should read it and every educator should read it. So thank you much. Thank you for being with me. And I look forward to having you back on your next book. I hope it's in the works already. Thank
1: you, Nancy.
0: Well, that's a wrap. I'm glad you could join me. I hope you'll subscribe, like, and share this podcast and help me spread the word about the power of learning. Till next time.